0: and I'm Al Cresta. We're living at a time where big questions are being asked and old certainties are being shaken, polished up, or maybe dismantled. i uh, give you some idea of what this, what this sounds like. Uh, this is a little piece, uh, a little bit, from uh, uh, the YouTube channel Unbelievable. It's from 2018, and there's a debate going on between a Christian theologian named Andy Bannister and uh, Peter Singer, the uh, philosopher, I think, at Princeton University. And during the debate, the host uh, brings up the first paragraph of the preamble to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which says, whereas recognition of the inherent dignity uh, and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. Well, Peter Singer responds in this way.
1: First, we should look at this term dignity for a start yes, and, yes. and say all humans are supposed to have this, whatever it means, right? So all humans includes those who are, let's, let's say, anencephalics, right? Um, an is an infant born uh, with only brain stem, with essentially with, with no cortex, with no capacity for consciousness. And an anencephalic will not smile at his or her mother, won't recognize his or her mother, um, presumably is not capable of experiencing or feeling anything at all. But that is a human being, mm. you know, same chromosomes and so mm. on. Uh, now compare that with uh, a chimpanzee or a horse or, you know, choose your favorite non-human animal, mm. if you like, why should we think that this human who can have no experiences um, has more dignity than the, the, the chimpanzee or, mm. the, or the horse or the dog who can respond in so many complex ways to their environment? So, so
2: essentially you, you would contest the statement, quite simply, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights.
1: There, there because are some, all, yes, yeah, that's right, yeah, there are exceptions. Uh,
0: so what you have there is again calling into question a definition of what it means to be human. And questioning even what is uh, meant by the word dignity uh, of the human person. My guest, O. Carter Sneed, has just written a book, What It Means to Be Human, in which he undertakes to come up with a public bioethics uh, that can help us uh, through some of these real prob- great problems that we're facing in the world uh, of American uh, public moral decision making. It is called the under the subtitle is the case for the body in public ethics. Carter's the uh, directs the, uh, the Nicholas Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. He's their professor of law and concurrent professor of political science, also a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life, and a fellow at the Hastings Center. And Carter, great to have you back here. Thanks. Good to join you again, Al. It's always a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> uh, we're living uh, at a time. Uh, When the people of the United States and Western Europe are dealing with problems of major public significance, uh, dealing with procreation, pregnancy, babies, uh, illness uh, in which you waste away, um, clinical trials that people are pushing for, uh, patients who are afraid uh, of what doctors might do to them. You've got uh, the dying and the dead, and we all think that somehow we can resolve Uh, these questions and uh, indeed there are many brilliant men and women who argue and debate and all this and those debates go on and then politicians come along and legislators come along looking at those debates and they try to cobble together legislation but one of the things you point out at the, the very beginning of the book is that as important as these questions are we are dealing with a very incomplete uh, non-comprehensive vision of the most important term in this discussion, and that is the word "human." Well, what does it mean to be human? Tell us a little bit about the history of this. It, it, did we always have such a disagreement on such a fundamental word? Yeah,
2: no, it's a great, it's a great question. The book makes the argument that the question of what it means to be a human being is actually at the core of the richest understanding of any area of law and public policy, but it it has special consequences for uh, public bioethics, which is the governance of science, medicine, and biotechnology, in the name of ethical goods. And, uh, you know, the history of American public bioethics begins in the late 1960s, early 1970s, with a series of scandals uh all of which involve the exploitation of the weakest and most vulnerable among us uh by by the elite and powerful and strong um i cover three particular examples uh, at the the landscape the historical landscape for how we got to where we are and um it's always been true it's always been true that uh the question of what it means to be human has been at the core of these disputes, and frankly, ignoring the, the fullness of human experience and what it means to be a human being has has kind of been the explanation for our persistent failure to protect the weakest and most vulnerable. So mm-hmm. those three scandals involved research involving human subjects uh, that was chronicled by Dr. Henry Beecher in a New England Journal of Medicine article in 1966. Um, where he described 22 experiments in which uh, very elite and eminent uh, research organizations including the federal government including Ivy League schools pursued um, very very exploitative uh, research interventions with human subjects and in almost every single case say perhaps two didn't didn't even secure meaningful consent from the subjects and the most egregious of what I'm talking about, there were two particular examples uh, in which um, that were especially striking. One of which was the injection of hepatitis into intellectually disabled children oh. uh, at a, a, a state home called Willowbrook on Staten Island, and the other is injecting live cancer cells into patients, many of whom are suffering from senile dementia, at the New York Jewish Chronic Disease Hospital. And these are cases in which, you know, basically very powerful entities who had the best intentions to derive, you know, important generalizable knowledge to help the common good, just exploited these folks who were basically invisible, who had no capacity to speak for themselves or to defend themselves. Wow. Uh, the same was true in the second scandal involving poor African-American sharecroppers in Alabama, in Tuskegee, Alabama, where yeah. the U.S. government <coughs> conducted a 40-year study of syphilis without telling these poor sharecroppers what they were doing, uh, didn't ever provide them with any medicine to, to even alleviate their give them antibiotics, even though that became standard of care in the 1940s yeah. for syphilis and, um, and systematically lied uh, lied to these folks, deceived them, exploited them. And then the third sort of scandal is the scandal involving Research in the early 1970s involving newly uh, aborted—that is, newborn babies who had just been aborted, who were imminently dying, but were in some cases kept alive longer so that these researchers could do experiments that, that briefly prolonged their lives and certainly increased their suffering—and um, mm. and these three events all set a kind of cascade of public. Public uh, reaction that that culminated in congressional hearings and the passing of a, of a federal statute, National Research Act. But the problem with that law, in some ways, is that it focused on autonomy and self determination as the principal goods to be vindicated and the principal protections for people taking the form of informed consent. It assumes that a person uh, is capable of of the kinds of intellectual activities that. That make consent possible, or someone who's, uh, you know, acting freely in their circumstances, not being coerced by systemic racism or by uh, circumstances of incarceration, which was the case with some of the research subjects in the Beecher article, uh, to, to exercise their free will in a full way. So it's this flattened vision, as you said in your introduction, of what a person is, it reducing the person to their will, to their desire, to their capacity to have experiences, to their capacity to forge their own pathway in the universe. This is what Peter Singer revealed to be a a severe defect in his understanding of what it means to be human, because he wants to rule out those human beings from the circle of moral and legal concern, those who aren't capable of of higher cognitive functioning. That leaves behind a whole lot of folks. It
0: sure does. Uh, So so this debate ends up, they try to resolve it by granting that um, the human is... uh, An individual who somehow is a will, uh, exercises the will, uh, giving informed consent, um, this will is able to project some sort of future, the question when asked then is, what happens to human beings, what does it it mean to be a human, if in fact uh, you're comatose or you don't have the capacity to exercise informed consent, do you lose your humanity?
2: well clearly according to peter singer you do right. uh, chair yeah. of ethics at Princeton university um and according to you know we use the word anthropology in its modern sense to describe people going all over the world to report back you know the practices of faraway peoples but when when we when i use the word anthropology and in our conversation today we use the word anthropology probably using it in its in its uh, original sense and meaning, what it, account of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a person, and the anthropology that that holds that human beings are reducible solely to their wills, or their individual wills—that is, people are not defined by their relationships; they're not. In any way defined by their constitutive ties to family or community or what their social roles might be they 're simply understood in as an abstracted individuated will whose highest flourishing is to is to invent and to pursue their own open future. that anthropology is called expressive individualism okay. Okay. and it is and yeah and, and that 's the, that's the anthropology the false anthropology that underlies the American public bioethics of abortion and end-of-life decision-making and assisted reproductive technology. That... It is a vision of the person that doesn't capture the fullness of, of who we are and, and doesn't take seriously any, as you said at the beginning, any of the entailments of the fact that we are we are bodies. Right. We're a dynamic unity of body and mind. We're not simply minds, a ghost in a machine with an instrumental body, and instrumental relationships. We are, in fact, a dynamic unity of body and mind, and our embodiment has certain kinds of uh, inexorable um, realities like our vulnerability our, our mutual dependence, and our subjection to natural limits
0: is that phrase expressive uh, individualism uh, is that a, have, has that become a common phrase in the debate you know its it was an important phrase um,
2: it was originally coined by Robert bella in thousand nine hundred and eighty five uh, uh, author of the 1995 classic Habits of yep. the Heart American social scientist who right. studied 200 who went out there and interviewed uh, a bunch of Americans and asked them who they thought they were and what they thought their flourishing was and, and what he found was precisely this self-understanding that he dubbed expressive individualism and then philosopher Charles Taylor at uh, McGill okay. University in Canada further deepened this and, and expressive individualism okay. is is I think has
0: a kind of an important term okay. to understand this Hold it there, Carter. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Carter Snead, author most recently of What It Means to Be Human The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. He directs the uh, Dean Nicholas Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame and is a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life and a fellow at the Hastings Center. We're talking about the problem in American public bioethics, uh, it becomes a notable field uh, in the late 60s, developing out of some real problems. Uh, Detected in the late 60s, at the present time, a lot of what uh, is discussed in this uh, area of bioethics um, is done in pursuit of what we call expressive individualism, which sees the human as uh, an individual, atomized individual, who is basically rendered or designated as human because of their capacity to envision an open future and exercise a will in a given direction, it the book asks the question though: of what in the world does it mean to be embodied? I mean, if if if, if we're merely the will, then what does it mean that we have bodies? And in fact, that because we have bodies, we have to deal with others. Uh, we, we're dependent upon others. Uh, we are called to help others we're not mere atomized individuals you you deal with what are fundamentally religious questions here but you don't do it using traditional religious terminology but you're asking those kind of big questions that are normally regarded as religious questions tell me about that
2: yeah so it's definitely the, so the, as you say the book is not um is not doesn't take a religious perspective. It's not. I'm Catholic, of course, and, yeah. and uh, profess the Catholic faith, and uh, everything in the book that I argue is certainly consonant and coherent, consistent with the truth of the faith, affirms, obviously. Right. Uh, in fact, the, the Church's view of of, of who a person is, is is said sort of more concisely, more beautifully than I say in the book, which is they were made in the image of likeness of God, mm-hmm. and therefore have the obligation to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and, to, and, and, and there are all kinds of consequences that flow from that. I mean, Mother Teresa said it more beautifully than I could also. and She said that, uh, you know, the reason we don't have peace or if we have no peace is because we've forgotten that we belong to one another. Right. And, um, and, And the book is basically a long argument for the proposition that we belong to one another. Right. Precisely because we have... We live our lives as embodied beings. Um, Now, your listeners might wonder why is what what on earth does this concept of anthropology have to do with law and public policy? Right? Aren't don't we live in a pluralistic nation where people are you know disagree about these?
0: Yeah, well, that's kind of where that's kind of where I was going with the religion question. Yeah. So so here's uh, yeah no no and 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 so
2: here's there's a very simple answer to that. Um, At Notre Dame Law School, we teach our students that the richest way to understand law and policy is is to uh, is to drill down into the normative structure and ask the question of what is this law for what princi- what what good is it seeking to pursue what harm is it seeking to avoid and that puts you in a position of understanding whether or not the mechanisms of the law are well designed to advance those goals or if those goals in the first instance are good uh, or bad and we do this as a, you know as a, as, a, as a democratic republic in the United States we deliberate about these things we, but every law is irreducibly normative every law aims to do something good or avo- avoid something bad, and therefore it has bound up within it principles of justice, concepts of equality, concepts of freedom that operate even though maybe we don't say out loud what they are. And in the book, I argue that take it a step further, Say because law itself exists for the sake of the protection and flourishing of persons, and everybody agrees with that, that's not a controversial statement, that my insight is that means that the law has to have an underlying assumption about what a person is. Right because if it doesn't if we don't know what a person is or what a what a person's thriving consists in mm-hmm. then all of our laws are going to be arbitrary and capricious at best because if they're meant to serve persons and to protect persons then what is, what do we mean how do we and it's not just about by the way drawing the boundaries of the moral and legal community to say when does life begin of course that's an important question mm-hmm. but even the question of who who you and I are Right? Who are we? People who are sort of, you know, con- we get a lot of consensus of the proposition that you and I are persons across the ideological spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, but the question still is, what, who and what are we? What constitutes our flourishing, and what do we owe to each other? And, and for the law to actually to do its job, to protect us and to promote our flourishing, it has to have some kind of operating assumption about who and what we are. And, and what I aim to do in the book, and what I try to do, is to surface the unstated account of who a person is to show that the reason the law doesn't fully protect human beings, every member of the human family, in the context of abortion-assisted reproduction and end-of-life decision-making, is because, because the first principle, the first question of what a person is, the law gets it wrong. And it, and it gets it wrong by defining persons in such a reduced and flattened way that it misses whole aspects of our individual and shared lives together. And that's not to say that we're not free and that we're not uh, individuated and that we don't, and there's not value in, in pursuing an open future. Of course, all those things are true. The issue is that's not the only truth. Those are, that's not even close to, the, to, to capturing the whole truth about who you and I are and what we owe to each
0: other. Where can this, um, I guess the, the question I would have then is where can this question, this is a, again a big macro question. What does it mean to be human? Where does this get debated? In other words, how do, how does a, 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 a pluralistic uh, democratic republic resolve a question like that? How does it happen? I mean, culture yeah. plays a part in it. Politics plays a part in it. Legislation, but faith. We're, we're, what what do we have set up to answer right. questions like that?
2: No, it's a great. I mean, so so the first point I would make is there's no there's no avoiding it. Right? Either we debate it. Or we operate on the unspoken assumptions which may or may be right or may be wrong and in these areas that I talk about are simply false, right? They're simply they don't understand what it means to be a human being and they don't and, 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 and they don't and therefore they can't even come close to explaining what human flourishing is. Because we are embodied beings, uh, we have obligations to one another because we are mutually dependent, we're mutually vulnerable, and what we need for our survival are what McIntyre talks about uh, networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving, made up of people mm-hmm. who are willing to make the good of someone else their own good without asking for anything in return. And the most pristine and obvious example of that is the family. Right, a child doesn't have to earn the right to be cared for by his or her parents, right. and parents don't ha- aren't obliged to take care of their children only because they signed a contract at some point in the past. Right, it's by virtue of that relationship. That there are obligations and privileges that flow in different directions, but so the question is you asked, where does this get debated? Well, I'll tell you, it, it, it got debated implicitly in, in by the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade when Harry Blackman describes the relationship of mother and unborn child essentially as the, as an antagonistic relationship of strangers fighting right. over scarce resources, yep. right? Yep. Fight, fighting over the body of the mother. And, um, and that's, if anybody who has either been pregnant or has been the beneficiary of a pregnancy, that includes everyone who's walking on earth today, <laughs> um, uh, everybody knows that that is a completely foreign and bizarre account of what human pregnancy is. Right. What we're talking about in pregnancy is a relationship of a mother and a child, an unborn child, to be sure, a child who's not mature and who can't formulate future directed plans, but we're talking about a crisis involving a mother and a child, not two atomized strangers fighting over scarce resources, and Blackman does that. He does it, and in, 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 my, in my chapter on abortion, I sort of explain and show how he relies implicitly on the philosophy of abortion rights to describe pregnancy and then to describe the, the only solution that's fitting for a situation involving an antagonistic struggle between two individuals, and that's violence. Right, the, the one has to use violence to repel the incursion of the parasite. Yeah, sure. Basically, is sure. how Blackman talks about yeah, it. Yeah. So in that case, the justices talk about it, but more commonly, but they did that by twisting the Constitution's meaning and its facts and tradition. Optimally, what we would do is we'd have a conversation in our deliberative bodies, you know, in Congress or our state legislatures or in administrative agencies, and we'd say, and we would we would frame these questions within categories that are recognizable parent-child, uh, you know, uh, loved one, neighbor, community, friends. Like, this is how you talk about these relationships. You don't simply abstract. So, for example, when a person is seeking to end his or her life by assisted suicide, you don't, you don't project onto that person the, this sort of false image of the unencumbered will seeking to define its way in the universe, which is precisely how the laws in Oregon and other states Right. Assume a person is, right? right. They, they construct protections and safeguards for that idealized false image of a person. What we're talking about is a much more complicated situation. A person who is suffering from a physical ailment in a corruptible body, who is, who is not, not operating at the height of their autonomy but they're sick they're vulnerable they're probably suffering from treatable depression as over 70% of people with suicidal ideation have mm-hmm. they are not at at an atomized will they live in a family they live in a community and if they kill themselves there are consequences for those folks as well and in a, they, and they also live in a in a community where there are vulnerable people the elderly and the disabled and those suffering from dementia those from discreet insular disfavored minorities who are going to be put at risk in ways they never have been before if we change the law to allow that person in the bed to commit suicide yeah. right yeah. so it's about framing i think it's about framing and we don't have to get into the metaphysics of you know the mind body problem in the state legislature right. but right. but we do but we do have to talk about these categories that we all deal with all the time parents and family versus Atomized strangers fighting over scarce resources.
0: It is funny, isn't it? I mean, it, it, that this is um, a lot of these discussions take place without a recognition of uh, our dependence on one another, how we are vulnerable um, to uh, being abused, and the need, as, as you point out, I think you were thinking here of Al- Alistair McIntyre. Uh, we need robust and expansive networks of uncalculated giving. In graceful receiving, populated by people who make the good of others their own good without demand or expectation of recompense." Um, so the question one would raise, though, is, well, those kind of communities are ideal, those are ideal, but where do we see them? Do we even see them in the Church?
2: Yeah, no, that's a really important question. and. In the book, I don't get into sort of granular proposals about how to construct, uh, you know, laws and policies right. to right. to shore these up. And, but I, I stay at the high level of purpose and saying that you, know, you can measure how good or bad a law is to, by the extent to which it supports and sustains these networks of giving and receiving. Right. And right. sometimes, sometimes the law serves these networks by getting out of the way and allowing, you know, civil society to to create these special little communities of love that, that support one another, uh, but sometimes they're not forthcoming, and sometimes they're not there, and in those circumstances, the law has to intervene directly to at least, to the very least, protect the people who are endangered by the absence of these networks, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are examples, though, you can think of the Little Sisters of the Poor, for example, as a beautiful example of a network of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving right. and, and serving the elderly poor. Um, and. The government would be good to get out of the way and let them do their work. But That's other right. But if we don't have them, the government may very well need to intervene to, to, at the very least, as I said, protect those who are in danger.
0: Yeah. Carter, great job. Uh, I'd love to talk again soon on this. I think this is going to, I hope this has the impact uh, that I hope. It's a tremendous piece of work. Thank you.